Good afternoon. I think we are live. I hope we are live. I'm afraid we may have been live for a couple of minutes, but I'm late getting on. How are you doing, Joe? I'm good. Thank you. I think it just now went live on Facebook, so All right. uh, I think you're safe. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this is Bible Quest Wednesday edition, and we're going to be talking about the seven churches of Asia today, uh, mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapters two and three. And um, so, uh, Joe, I'm going to take a second here to pull up a uh, PowerPoint, and I've got to quit talking so that I can think of the name of the file. And so if you'll talk from it, I can't do two things at once. I can't think and talk at the same time. That's bad for preacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, if you're following along with us this afternoon, uh, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll look at focusing in, in chapters two and three to uh, discuss these seven churches of Asia. For the most part, what we know about these churches, biblically speaking, is limited to uh, these two chapters. We do know quite a bit about Ephesus. Um, uh, we read about Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19 and the book of Ephesians and the book of 1 Timothy. Um, uh, but the other churches, we know very little about them um, uh, as far as what the scriptures teach. But there's plenty of information in these two chapters and even what is in chapter one and chapter four and five uh, also are certainly related uh, for, for us to gain what we need to make good applications in our own lives today. You know, I just went over this last week and I had a PowerPoint. Oh, here it is. I found it maybe. Uh, yeah, I think this is going to work. Um, yeah, this will work. Okay. Um, so let me get back to you and share the screen here. And also just mention that Chase isn't with us uh, this afternoon, unfortunately. Uh, so it's just the two of us uh, today. All right. So this map, can you see this map, Joe? Yes, sir. So I've got this map uh, with all these seven churches clustered up and, and, uh, and we're not zoomed in enough. The, the, the titles of the names of the cities are superimposed upon one another. We'll zoom in, we get a little bit better idea here. But backing up, just to see where we are, this is Italy over here. Rome would be over here. This would be Greece. This is modern-day Turkey. And when we talk about Asia in the New Testament, all we're talking about is just this uh, western end of what is modern-day Turkey. It doesn't include Russia. It doesn't include China. It doesn't include Afghanistan. Asia was a Roman province. It was the name of this province right here on the western end of Turkey. Uh, I hope we can get that clear. <clears throat> it's amazing <laughs> how hard it is to get that across to people today because everybody, you can say it, but still, when you start talking about Asia, they're thinking China. Right, right. Uh, and so, are there some other, like when we talk about Asia Minor, does that, how does that play in to? Uh... So, so, Asia Minor is not a biblical term, it is a term that is used outside the Bible to represent this whole peninsula, as, as I understand it. Another name for this peninsula is the Anatolian Peninsula. And uh, I believe that's what is referred to by Asia Minor. And I've often heard Christians uh, say, oh no, the Bible isn't talking about Asia, it's talking about Asia Minor. No, it's not even that. It's only this little Western end of Asia Minor that was the Roman so province of Asia. 
So maybe if we're talking about the book of Acts, we have uh, Antioch uh, of Pisidia and some of those others that are going to be further east than where these seven churches are. That's right. Uh, they were not in Asia. They were not in the Roman province known as Asia. Right. So John starts out and he, he says he's on the island of Patmos, which is here. And if you look at the seven churches, Joe, do you have Revelation chapter 7? And uh, I'm thinking it's about verse 11 or 12, where the Lord tells John to write to these seven churches. Uh, Revelation 1, you say? Yeah, what did I yeah. say? I thought you said 7. But I Revelation 1. Did. I got seven churches in my head. Yeah, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, I'll start in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, in, uh, uh, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, let's go through that again, read those cities in order, and I'll track it on the map here. So his message is going to go from Patmos to where? Uh, first is the first one listed is Ephesus, uh, Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. So it becomes pretty obvious that the order in which they're mentioned would easily be the order in which a messenger carrying uh, the Book of Revelation could deliver this to these seven churches. And you say that because of some of the mountain ranges that are listed there? Well, it is interesting. As you look, it does seem that you, um, in some cases, like uh, as you're coming from Pergamum here to Thyatira, you're coming across this valley and you can cut through this pass here. Thyatira, you're skirting this mountain. Sardis, you're skirting along the north side of this range. But it wasn't so much that as just that it, it makes more sense than if he'd said to Ephesus, to Philadelphia, to Smyrna, to Laodicea, to Pergamum, right. to Thyatira, to Sardis. This is just a circuit here, is, yeah. is what I'm thinking. Um, now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, uh, John identifies himself. He says, I, John, your brother and partaker with you. Partaker. What does your Bible say where mine says partaker with partaker, Joe? What verse are you in now? Verse 9, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, you're both your brother and companion. Companion. But it's not just companion absolute. It's companion in something. Or mine says partaker in something. Yes. So he's sharing in something with them. And what does he say he's sharing in? He mentions three things. Yeah. In tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. All right. And, and where we have patience, you, both you and I, in our Bibles, it's, not, it's, a, it's a word that often is better translated steadfastness or perseverance, right. having to bear up under difficult situations, and that's the idea. So when we talk with people about the book of Revelation, a lot of people will think about, yeah, it prophesies of a great tribulation that's to come, and very often when people make that connection, they assume that it's talking about a great tribulation that's going to come in our future. So 2,000 years plus past the time of John. But John says he is already a companion or partaker or sharer in a tribulation and with those to whom he's writing, with these seven churches. 
And uh, if we jump ahead, we'll see, for example, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, when he addresses the church at Smyrna, um, the Lord is the one speaking to them. And it says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. Uh, look also for the word patience. Um, if you'll notice in verse uh, chapter 2, and this is going to be in verse uh, 19. 19. What did you have? Yep. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so these are things that, and, and again, patience having that idea of perseverance, which they're going to need because they're going through tribulation. So the thing, the takeaway here is John is talking about a, a tribulation and he's talking about a tribulation that he's already enduring and that they are already enduring. And uh, he's not talking about something that's <clears throat> off 2000 years in the future. Joe, have you thought much about why these were these the only churches um, in in well they weren't the only churches in the first century uh why these seven churches uh that is a great question i'd love to hear your answer for that well uh it, it so happens that um the roman emperors were establishing a cult of caesar worship and especially so in this area there were 37 cities that were designated as temple wardens um, of temples to the emperors, most of them right here in Asia. Among them, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Uh, was it Smyrna? Ephesus, Smyrna? I believe it was Smyrna. It was one of the S's, and I believe it was Smyrna, not Sardis. And uh, they had temples. You know, Libby and I were in Ephesus and Smyrna, which is now Izmir back in the fall of last year, and we saw the temple that was established to Domitian in Ephesus, the Roman Emperor Domitian, and it was built in the last decade, the early part of Domitian, Domitian's reign in the first century, and it was a temple honoring Domitian as a deity, and there was a cult of priests associated with these temples that, is, that, that encouraged the Caesar worship. You might wonder and this is, this is my speculation a little bit, but you might wonder if, if we go back to this previous map, this previous map here, how do I get back there? There we go. Um, back here. If Italy's way over here and Rome is over here, <clears throat> why is it that Caesar worship is over here? And remember, this, these 37 cities designated as temple guardians are mostly right in right in this area, right here. Why, why, if Rome's over here, would that be going on over here? If you go back to the century before Christ, after the death of Julius Caesar, the emperor was divided up. It was co-ruled, you could say, by Octavius, who becomes Augustus, who is the emperor who was reigning when Jesus was born, and Mark Antony. And the idea was that Octavius or Augustus would have the western part of the empire and Mark Antony would have the eastern part of the empire but there was a battle at Actium and I want to say that was in 29 BC but I may have that date wrong 
but that's right up here on this western coast of this peninsula. And uh, Mark Antony has to flee. It was a battle between Mark Antony and Octavius. So even though they were kind of co-rulers, they're now competing, warring with each other. And it seems that Octavius establishes the idea of wanting to exert his influence farther east. And he is the one who, first of all, I think it was Pergamum, allowed them to set aside land as holy land in his honor. And then eventually there is a temple built there. And then Pergamum would compete with Ephesus to try to be the one that most honored Caesar and or the emperor. And so as a result, you have Christians in this area who are going through tribulation difficulty as, as if they're going, if as they would find it difficult to conduct business and go about their lives in a normal fashion unless they compromise and go along with this patriotic emperor worship. They're not Romans, but they're, they're trying to, well, some of them were Romans, uh, but they're trying to, um, you know, get in good with the emperor. Yeah, and so I suspect that that would also be pretty strategic because wouldn't those three cities be coastal cities as well then? Yeah. Ports, port cities for, uh, again, strategic for uh, the military? Ephesus and Smyrna were definitely port cities <clears throat> right on the coast. Pergamum is a little inland, but it's not all that far inland. Um, and, and all of these, and remember, there are 37 cities in this area that have this designation. Um, so so that's, that's just some historic background. So the, the, the big takeaway from what we've said so far is the book of Revelation is addressing a persecution that was going on in, in, at the end of the first century and into the second century, and Christians there were going to have to persevere through it. And then the book of Revelation unfolds the judgments that God is going to bring upon those who are persecuting God's people. I, any more comments about that, Joe, before we get into what is said to each of the seven churches? So the point that you're making then is that, that this is not something that was written only for off into the future is some prophecy to be fulfilled 2,000 years, John's already experiencing that. Yeah. And the churches are already experiencing he's that. He's not talking about communist Russia or anything like that. There are some lessons to be learned from what is said to these, these seven churches that are applicable today. And, and that's where we want to go uh, for the rest of our webcast today. But yeah. that's exactly right. He's, he's talking to, to them about things they are experiencing at that time, late first century, and then on into the second century. Certainly is helpful to appreciate that fact um, uh, because so much speculation is written about what do these seven churches represent, different time periods or whatever. No, they were the seven churches. Yeah. That's what they are told. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, sometimes I make the illustration that if you're driving down the road and you see one of these yellow signs on the side of the road mm -hmm. and it has four legs and uh, you know it, it's clearly some kind of an animal and you think, well, that kind of looks like a deer. And uh, so that's a sign for a deer crossing. Well, that sign's not a deer, but then you look out and you're like, sure enough, there's some deer over there. Um, uh, evidently they could read that sign. They knew where to cross. Um, they can't uh, read, but they do recognize pictures of themselves. <laughs> oh yes, okay, very good, good. So you have a sign and then you have the real thing. 
The same thing is true in this text. You have these uh, seven lampstands. That's the sign. The real thing is the seven churches. Yeah. We're not looking for the churches to represent something else. They're the real thing. Yeah, good. I like that. All right, good. Okay, uh, so, and just to, the because Jesus, he's standing in the midst of seven lampstands holding seven stars in his hands, and the seven stars represent the angels that are going to be sent to the churches uh, that correspond to the seven lampstands. All right, well, we get to the, to the message to the first church, and um, let's see. I'll, I'll read a little bit, Joe, and then let's just talk about uh, briefly if we see any parallels today. Are there churches <clears throat> that, that kind of have similarities to what is said about the church at Ephesus? We remember the church at Ephesus was established. Paul first, to our knowledge, Paul was first there at the end of chapter 18 in the book of Acts when he left uh, Aquila and Priscilla there at the end of his second journey, near the end of his second journey. He went on back to Jerusalem and to Antioch, and then he begins his third journey. And after Apollos has arrived at Ephesus, Paul arrives at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And we remember how um, the, the Jews in, uh, in um, Ephesus, especially, first of all, responded to the gospel, and then Gentiles Paul, from that seat of operations there in Ephesus, the gospel is preached to all Asia, he says. Well, now remember, Asia is this area here. And uh, there were people who were uh, impressed when Paul cast out the demon. Um, help me out with this story. Seven sons of Sceva. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there were uh, various uh, uh, sons of the of the priest who were trying to imitate Paul, uh, unable to, to do so, right? Um, which made what Paul was doing even more obvious. Uh, people trying to imitate it, unable to do so. Uh, Sceva was a Jewish high priest, Acts 19.14. Um, and so that kind of contrast, the Jewish priest's descendants' sons can't do this, but Paul can. Uh, that magnified the name of the Lord as a result of that. And they had the people who were so impressed had these books, these magic books, these books that would tell them how to mix up their potions and what incantations to say and those kinds of things. And they were valuable books. People spent money for those things. In fact, Luke tells us that the people who were impressed with Paul's power got serious about getting this stuff out of their lives and they came and they bought those books, they burned them, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books, if I remember correctly. That's huge, 50,000 pieces. Yeah, am silver. I remembering that number? That, that, right? That's exactly right, yeah, verse 19. The, the, but the thing to notice here is that they didn't just say, well, I won't read that book. They didn't say, well, I'll give it away. They didn't say, well, I'll, I'll take it down to use bookstore and get my money for it. They burned them. That's, that's some serious love for the truth. And so then we get here to Revelation chapter 2, and in verse 4, the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, you did leave your first love. What do you make of that? <clears throat> well, I, so their first love, uh, I would think, would be that of the Lord, uh, not their first in time, uh, but first in priority, um, uh, they needed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. Uh, the, the first and greatest commandment um, 
he ties it together with their first works in verse five. Uh, remember your, remember you've left your first love. Remember verse five from where you fall and repent and do the first works. Uh, the, they, they, need, they needed to get back to the basics of, of loving God and being serious about their commitment to him. Now, Joe, what do you make of the fact that you've got a group of people who are described as not willing to put up with false doctrine? Uh, when evil men came, they, they called themselves apostles. This church tried them, found them false, and would not put up with that. Uh, they seem to have, they seem to have uh, the quality of, of saying, this is truth. We're not going to put up with that error and that kind of thing. And yet it can be said they've left their first love. And all of those things that you mentioned from verse two and verse three, those are commended, aren't they? Yeah. They were good things. They should, right. they should have been doing those things. Yeah. But, but it is possible to do all the right things for the wrong reason. Yeah. And that, that's pretty scary when we think about the fact that, that that's not something that is uh, limited to 2,000 years ago. Uh, I could very well be guilty of that if I'm not careful. So if I think about first love in the way you talked about it, and I think of Jesus' statement, no man can serve two masters. Um, you know, when it comes to Lord and riches, I'm going to serve one or the other. And Jesus makes that point. And so you could have a church where they've got all the right doctrines. And um, they're willing to talk about what's wrong with that false doctrine and what's wrong with that false doctrine and um, yet, when it comes right down to it, they're maybe, maybe they're materialistic and they're more interested in their money or their wealth or whatever than spiritual things. Is, is, am I on the right track? Or, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on here at Ephesus. Yeah. Uh, I, I once heard about a group that they, somebody was describing this other church and they said that that, that group is a, it's a sound church. The problem is that they're also sound asleep. Um, you know, they, they were not going to do anything doctrinally wrong, but they were not serving the Lord. They, they weren't passionate about, uh, about the Lord. It, it, it would almost seem as if, and, and I'm just using that as an illustration, I don't know that other church, but uh, it would almost seem as if they had forgotten that they were purged from their sins and uh, that, that they had an obligation to the Lord and should serve that out with with passion even and, and, uh, and diligence. Let's move on to the church at Pergamum. We'll skip Smyrna unless there's something in particular you want to say there, but the Lord doesn't really have any criticisms of the church at Smyrna, um, as I understand it. Right. Uh, anything you want to talk about there before we go on to Pergamum? Just impressive that there are some churches that are, are doing well, and yeah. he doesn't have criticisms for. Um, uh, we probably ought not to understate that uh praise be to god for churches that are serving the lord faithfully and doing what he wants them to do and it's not that this was a church that you could drive by and see a grand campus that they had built and that and they're very wealthy and all he says i know your tribulation and your poverty right but you are rich well i, I would take that to mean that their poverty was in a material way but their riches were in a spiritual way blessed yeah yeah absolutely uh so then we come to uh, verse 12, and he writes to the angel of the church at Pergamum, and he mentions even where Satan's throne is, Pergamum was renowned as a seat of emperor worship and idolatry, and at Pergamum, he mentions Antipas, and Antipas is described as, 
quote, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It seems that Antipas had already been killed for his faith. Yeah. So we, that, I mean, that's the extent to which we see tribulation. Smyrna, the saints there were told, you're going to have tribulation 10 days, be faithful even unto death. So that's the extent to which they were suffering tribulation. But in the message to Pergamum, he talks about an Old Testament character, Balaam, and he says there are some in Pergamum who hold the teaching of Balaam. What is the teaching of Balaam? Was it premillennialism? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, uh, uh, so Balaam, uh, what he taught uh, Balak, king of the Moabites, uh, leader of some Midianites as well, it seems like the used interchangeably there. Um, essentially, Balak had tried to get him to curse the Israelites. Balaam was unable to do that. Every time he opened his mouth, a blessing came out. And we don't have the whole story written out for us, but it seems pretty clear that Balaam eventually told Balak, you can't curse the Israelites, but you can get them to curse themselves. And so Balak sent his women down into the Israelite camp um, and convinced the Israelite men to commit prostitution with the women and to worship their idols, uh, probably enticing them. If you'll bow down to these idols, we'll give you our bodies sort of scenario. Yeah. Uh, so idolatry and sexual morality is the counsel of Balaam. Yeah. And just if, if you want to go back and, and review that story of Balaam, the story of Balaam being asked or, or hired to curse Israel and God not letting him do so begins in Numbers chapter 22 and continues through chapter 24. Then the women seducing the Israelites, the women from the from a Midianite woman is mentioned in particular, but in connection with the daughters of Moab, seducing the Israelites and the plague that came upon the Israelites is in Numbers 25. And you might wonder, well, what does that have to do with the story of Balaam? Well, then you get over to Numbers 31, and it's in Numbers 31 and verse 16 that we learn that Balaam had actually counseled the king of Moab, just as you described, Joe. Uh, use your women. I can't curse them for you, but if you use your women, you can get to them and bring them down. You mentioned the fornication in connection with the idolatry. That's certainly what we see in, in Numbers 25, and it's also the, the allusion here to the book of Numbers in Revelation 2. I wonder sometimes as I go through the book of Revelation, um, when he talks about fornication in connection with idolatry, it does seem in ancient times that fornication and idolatry, literal fornication, sexual sin, and idolatry went together. I wonder, too, though, sometimes if, if fornication and idolatry isn't, idolatry is the kind of fornication that he's talking about, a spiritual fornication where one is unfaithful to the Lord. Yeah, certainly you see that in books like Hosea, and you see the idea of idolatry described in other ways like covetousness in Colossians 3. Uh, covetousness is a form of idolatry. Uh, so I think that that may very well be the case. So today, how would we compare the church at Pergamum to churches today? Or what church, what kinds of things in churches today might represent holding the counsel of Balaam um, or holding the teaching of Balaam? Balaam, basically, he did what he did, apparently, for money. When, when, the, when the messengers from uh, Balak came to him to hire him. 
he first of all consulted with the Lord and the Lord told him, no, you can't go. And so the messengers came back more noble than the first and with more money or offers of more money. And so Balaam says, well, I told you I can't, the Lord won't let me, but let me go back and check with the Lord. And why would he go back and check with the Lord when the Lord has already given him the answer? Well, he, he sees that money. And the fact that he ended up giving this advice, here's how you can get to Israel. It seems like he found a way to get paid. Yep. So, so what, what would we, what would you see today in churches that could be a parallel to this? Well, uh, your, your point, I think, is spot on. Uh, Jude agrees with you. Um, uh, Jude talks about those who have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, Jude 11. Um, uh, and so, yeah, Balaam's uh, error was connected with his desire for uh, material gain. Um, uh, and boy, do we ever see that in our society, uh, the, the push for material gain. Do we see that in churches? Um, how many churches base their, their status or, or maybe even their faithfulness on how big their buildings are and uh, you know that how much property they own and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, maybe who they have with them uh, what the, their, their preacher's name or, or whatever the case might be. Let's put it this way. If, you're, if you are in a church where leadership will not take a stand against some particular sin because it would cut off their flow of money, either because they feel it would be an unpopular stand and they'd lose numbers or because they have in their back pocket some prominent wealthy individual who finances them and he's guilty of the sin and they don't want to step on his toes. If you have that kind of thing going on, that's a little like this, this uh, teaching of Balaam. Uh, it's interesting how often Balaam ends up getting mentioned in the New Testament. He also gets mentioned in 2 Peter, which is very similar to Jude. 2 Peter chapter 2 is, and it mentions Balaam in verse 15, talks about false teachers who forsaking the right way went astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the hire of wrongdoing. And earlier in that chapter, it talked about these false teachers who in verse 3, it says, in covetousness shall, make, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. In other words, they are out to get what they can out of you. And so they'll tell you what you want to hear, and they're going to get rich doing it. Teaching yeah. of Balaam. Yeah, you know, maybe just make note of this to see the, the consequences of this. Uh, in Revelation 2.12, uh, Jesus is shown to have this two-edged sword. And in verse 16, if the church won't quit that, uh, holding the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, then he's going to fight against them with the sword of his mouth, it says. You might just make note of that. You've probably already seen this before, Jeff, but in uh, Joshua 13, uh, Balaam is actually is killed when the Israelites conquer the east side of the Jordan, the land that Reuben is going to, to take. And it specifically mentions that uh, Balaam is killed with the edge of the sword. Um, uh, and so those who act like Balaam are, are going to face the consequences of that. Joshua 13 uh, verse 22. Um, Joshua 13, verse 22. The sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner, with the sword 
Interesting. With the sword. Good. No, I had not made that connection. And just we, we ought to see that, that compromising on truth brings about a disastrous, you know, we, we can imagine, well, imagine how, what that would be like to be killed with a sword. So it's I, I mean, you know, the, in Ephesians chapter four, the, the word is the sword. And, um, and so yeah. then you have, and, and you have Hebrews chapter four, and I'm not going to be able to pull the quote out here, but they're in about verse 13 or 14, 12, 13, yeah. um, sharper than any two-edged sword. Yes. yes. And, uh, so you've got this false teaching and the Lord is going to kill it, destroy it with the sword of his mouth and Balaam was killed with the sword. In, in, intended to bring a very graphic image uh, to the the result of those who, who compromise on truth. Got it. Good. Okay. What about Nicolaitans? It mentions Nicolaitans. Uh, do, you, do you want to go there? <laughs> I, I, I got nothing. I got, well, okay. Let, let me just mention this. Don't go to Wikipedia. <laughs> let, let me just say that. <laughs> Right. Wikipedia just they jump the shark when it comes to the Nicolaitans. Uh, wow. Uh, we don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans were or what they taught. There are some things that you can discern as you go through Revelation chapter two. It does talk about um, hold, some holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans in like manner. Is that saying that the, the Nicolaitans' teaching was similar to Balaam's, or is it saying that similarly to the way that some are going after Balaam, some are going after Nic the Nicolaitan teaching? The latter seems to be the case, I think. Yeah, especially um, if you contrast it with chapter 2 and verse 6, that one of the good things for Ephesus was that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, well, we might have more to say about the Nicolaitans at some point, but uh, maybe not today. Um, let's go on to the church at Thyatira. Uh, what do we have going on in the church at Thyatira that the Lord uh, is, is warning them about? So we're brought up uh, with another Old Testament illustration, right? Uh, we had Balaam in Pergamum, uh, and in Thyatira, we have this woman, Jezebel, in verse 20. Um Jezebel, wow. Uh, just, I mean, if you were thinking of the wicked women of the Bible, she's top two. Uh, I don't know. Um, top two. I'm trying to think who would the other one be. At, at her daughter, Athaliah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that's those are the two that come to my mind the quickest. Um, wow, like mother, like daughter, like daughter. Yeah, like daughter. yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, one of the worst kings in Israel, much because of her influence. Her father's name was Ethbael, king of uh, Sidonians. Um, and so she uh, was a pagan who married an Israelite king, right? And, and she and, didn't leave her paganism behind, right? Introduced Baal worship uh, to the Israelites, and it really took a foothold during. Uh, the uh, the dynasty of Omri, the father of Ahab, yeah. absolutely. Well, so there's this. It says there's a Jezebel in the church at Thyatira, and I I take that to mean not not a woman actually named Jezebel, but a woman like Jezebel, right? And and as a matter of fact, she is described as seducing the Lord's servants 
to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, we talked at the beginning of the webcast today about the fact that there were these um, temples set up to honor the, very, the Roman emperors, and there, there, was, there was pressure in these cities to honor the Roman emperor, and, and if you didn't go along with that, um, it could be a financial hardship. Your business could hurt, and so, in fact, in the second century, we read of, of Christians being killed uh, when they wouldn't go along with these sorts of things. And so this is a woman in the church who is encouraging the Christians, go ahead, just go ahead and do it. Go ahead, commit fornication, eat things sacrificed to idols. Eat things sacrificed to idols is to participate in the idol feast. Go ahead and do it. And uh, that's compromise. And it's because of the pressure, the societal pressure of the time. Uh, again, how do we see something similar to that today? Well, think about some of the recent issues that uh, the world, America, and churches have faced as far as calls for acceptance, tolerance, and celebration. Um, you know, the whole LGBTQ plus movements, yep. um, uh, you know, everything connected with that. Um, uh, you know, I really feel horrible for particularly the young people who have been terribly confused by educators and politicians to, to suggest that you, you, you don't have to uh, live with the uh, with what uh, sex you were born with, that if you're a male, you can, no, you, but you can think you're a female and, and you're a female and, and all of that sort of thing. And everything, of course, then that goes along with that, um, uh, all sorts of perverted uh, thoughts and activities. Um, mm -hmm. And churches around here are, you know, they're, they're questioned, you know, well, what's your position on that? And you'll be kind of ostracized if you're not celebrating that. Sure. In society, in the corporate world, there's a lot of pressure to go along with that. And uh, so churches um, may take a soft stand or may take no stand at all, or may, may take a stand favoring those things. And if okay. so, they're, they're compromising with the world. We've just got, we're running out of time, Joe. Two minutes, one minute for Laodicea and then one minute for Sardis in that order. And then we'll make some concluding remarks. Um, the church at Laodicea, uh, what do we learn about them and what can be said uh, about churches today? On Laodicea, boy, they had everything going for them, didn't they? I mean, uh, they, they really knew what to do. They were very uh, uh, organized. Uh, had everything taken care of, except the Lord, they've left the Lord on the outside. Yeah. Um, uh, um, so the Lord says in uh, chapter three, verse six, verse 15 and 16, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. So because you are warm, neither, uh, but so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. This is, you know, you use the expression sound asleep earlier. Hmm. This is not somebody who's like Thyatira necessarily going off and just participating in the idolatry, but it's also somebody who's not really very zealous 
Um, they're just they're just there, and but but they think that they have it all in order. Mm-hmm. I, I'm rich and have need of nothing. Um, you know, but you've got at the end of this text what seems like perhaps a, a beautiful passage. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, but that implies that he's on the outside of the church. Right, 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 right. Uh, chapter, chapter three in, in Sardis, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. And yet there were some, it says in verse five or verse four, some in the church there who did not defile their garments and they would walk with the Lord and right. There can be a dead church with people who are saved in it. And, and so here's where I want to go, Joe. So we see all these churches with all and various problems amongst them. And we see churches today with various problems. And the answer isn't necessarily shut down that church or leave that church. And the church at Corinth is a good example, which was not one of these seven churches. It was a church in Greece. But you look at the letter in 1 Corinthians, there were some of them there who were hung up on following people, human wisdom, tolerating fornication, justifying fornication, uh, eating things, sacrificed idols, participating in the idol feast, uh, people who doubted the resurrection from the dead, uh, people who thought of spiritual gifts as a showy kind of thing, and they were competing about that, making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And yet, it was a church that could be salvaged, and Paul was on his way there as he writes 1 Corinthians, planning to spend the winter with them. So it wasn't that, okay, if you're in the church of Corinth, you got to leave. But there's one thing that you can say about everybody in the church at Corinth, and, and it's seen in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, and it says this, um, for as the body, uh, verse 4, in one spirit were we all baptized into one body. I'm not saying that if you're baptized, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're in a church and there are problems, but the people in that church have all been baptized into Christ, you've got something you can work with, and maybe you can turn things around, and things need to be turned around. But if you're in maybe, a church, go ahead. I was going to say, consider 2 Corinthians. It seems as if they actually listened to Paul's right. admonitions. That's pretty significant. All churches have problems. Are you going to listen to the Holy Spirit? But if you're in a church... Where the people haven't even been baptized into Christ. They don't teach baptism. They rarely practice baptism. What they call baptism isn't even Bible baptism. They sprinkle some water on a baby. That's not Bible baptism. If you're in a church where the people have not been baptized into Christ, then they may have all these other problems we've been talking about, but, but you know what? You're not even in a church of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, if you can help them, help them. But you need to be in a church of Jesus Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, you need to be worshiping with people who've been baptized into Christ, or you're not even in a church of Jesus Christ. Paul was a brother, or excuse me, John was a brother with them in the tribulation, but also in the kingdom. Yeah. And so you need to make sure that you're in the kingdom and that you do the things that the Lord has said to enter that kingdom. Well, we're out of time, Joe. Uh, The last part of that went faster than I realized. Um, And we'll see everyone next week, Lord willing.